Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word for us. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and you happen to find yourself at the downtown campus. Christ Community is one church in five locations across the Kansas City metro. And today is a very full house, as Easter usually is, but this isn't outside of the norm all too much, which is why I'm so excited that we have our new home purchased, and we will be moving there, Lord willing, by the end of this year. It's just a couple blocks over to the west and a couple blocks south. If you're new, you have this feeling of tightness today, but it will not be like that forever. So God continues to grow his church, and it's a joy to be together today. And I want to begin by telling a story of a moment when I was at our Brookside campus, and it was extraordinarily packed. There was about 500 people there, and who was sitting in the second row but Bill Self, the, as many of you know, famous basketball coach for KU basketball, and most of the KU basketball team was there, some of the faculty, some of the staff, and some people that I know and, and love. And where was I? I was behind a guitar about to perform one of the most famous hymns in U.S. history um, in front of all of them. So <clears throat> I knew the, the groom. It was a gentleman. I was in youth ministry for a couple years as an intern, and I'd mentored him throughout high school. He was marrying Bill Self's daughter. And so he said, hey, Gabe, when we uh, have our first communion together, would you play Be Thou My Vision? I said, Sure. You know, I, I didn't think it all the way through. I didn't think I was going to be playing for Kansas royalty. I didn't realize. I mean, weddings are always a big deal. Like you mess up something at a wedding, you feel like you have a bad omen on your marriage. You know, it's like, oh, no. But, so it always feels kind of like a big deal. But this time it felt even more so. And <clears throat> there was one big problem that really, <laughs> it still terrifies me to think back on it. So it was a huge problem. So I, they're about to partake in their moment of communion, right? So the place is packed. Bill Self. KU basketball team, professors, people I don't know, people I do love and do know. And I'm just about to play Be Thou My Vision, and someone dims the lights, and I realized that my music stand, someone had moved it about a foot further away from my microphone, so I could not read the words or the music. <laughs> what do I do? Uh, now, what I was not going to do is stop playing and say, hold on just a second, you know, and just move forward. No. So what I decided to do was to wing it. Now, 
I, I got to be honest, I tried so hard to internalize this song. I, I've done this with other hymns, other songs. I've memorized them. But there's something about the lyrics of Be Thou My Vision that are just stupid hard to kind of internalize. I don't know if it's the way it flows. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's one of my favorites, but I just cannot memorize it. So what I did is the, the one verse I did know was the first one. So I'm playing, you know, they're having their communion. It's really sweet. It's beautiful. People are in the moment. I play the first verse. And then... I just make up a chorus, like <laughs> out of nowhere, just make up a chorus. Then I tag on a bridge. I know enough about the themes that I know where to go, like with a bridge. I go back to this chorus I just made up, and then I reprise the first verse. <clears throat> Comes to a close. I'm terrified. The only people who know what happened are me and the groom, okay? So I literally, it was fine at the end, some lady who came up who I'd led worship in that church, you know, the church that he grew up in for a couple of years. She came and she goes, I love when you do those modern renditions of those old hymns. <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah, I know it's great, you know, like, but inside, I, was, I mean, it was supposed to be so simple. I know this song. I played this song in my sleep. I, I can almost, if I can memorize it, sing it in my sleep. And something so simple was still latent with so many problems, right? <laughs> and isn't that the way it goes? It just... It just seems like no matter who you are or what you find yourself doing, everyone has problems, right? Everyone. And I mean, here, here's a good exercise. Think of your top three problems in your life right now. Now share them with your neighbor. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, but it's not hard, right? Like you can think, oh, the first problem, the second problem. Maybe you have to have a second breath to get to the third problem. But we all have problems. And sometimes we can get so consumed with our own problems that we forget that we all have problems, every single one of us. And you can call them what you want. They're big problems sometimes. They're small. They're temporary. They're first world. They're school. There's work problems. There's health issues. There's, you know, work issues. There's financial struggles. We find ourselves living in one of the safest, most comfortable, technologically advanced ages in history, and yet we all still have problems, right? Why? Have you thought about that? Like, why? why is it that we even have this feeling that the world isn't as it ought to be? Isn't that part of the reason why you're here today? I, I think we've all, and if you haven't had one yet, you will. You'll have this moment kind of like Mary at the empty tomb, face to face with her worst nightmare, wondering what's next, hoping, reaching, searching, searching that there might be something better than what she sees before, which is her problems. And if you take one step further back, then there's the whole problem with problems. Like, where do problems come from? I know I'm not the only person who's asked that question. Why are there problems in the world? Why is it that we can't seem to get rid of them? How do we explain the seeming brokenness in the world and the, the, the seemingly broken, the brokenness we feel in our lives? And what do we do about them? Well, today we're going to look at some answers. And to find those answers, we need to go to an ancient garden before there were any problems on the planet. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible where we see the beginning of everything that indeed does have a beginning. And it's right here we get a snapshot of a moment where we realize that problems weren't always a problem. If you're new, we've been walking through the book of Genesis. And 
Over and over and over again, we've seen God do something amazing, good, and beautiful. He's been creating this beautiful world that's full of abundance, that's perfect, such that after each day he creates, what does he say over his world? It is good. And it was. I mean, colors burst on the scene. He imagines fish, birds, animals. And then he positions the sun, moon, and the stars to be kind of like track lighting to emphasize the masterpiece of his creation. And then like a master potter, he creates the crowning jewel of his creation, us, human beings. And he places them in a plush garden. And I just want us to step back for a moment and think about this. In this perfect world, in the midst of this perfect garden, at the crown jewel of creation, we find human beings where there are no problems. There is no stress. Worry, just think about this. Worry that encompasses so much of our life is a foreign concept that takes work to get our minds wrapped around. Like, what is worry? And yeah, you have options, but the large majority, nearly every option you have is between one good option and another good option. This is a world before problems were a problem. But there was one rule. God says, look, I gave you everything. Like you have so many options before you. You have all of this. You can live life with me in this perfect world. You can do all of this. So many things before you. Every tree you can eat of. All of this different fruit that I've given you. So many things that are good and beautiful. All of this except for one. Just don't touch this one. Just don't eat this one. All of this, I've, I've prepared so much good for you. It's everywhere because I long for your good. I want your good, but just not this one. And if you go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what do they do? The same thing we all would do if we were put in that position. We read on in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Out of all the options, good after good after good, they choose the one that God says, don't go there. It's going to bring destruction. And so they thumb their noses at their creator God and they basically just say, hey, I know all you got was pretty great. Thanks for everything. This, no, seriously, the digs are awesome. Like just really appreciate it. But I think we know better on this one. Thanks for everything, but I think, I think we're going to be fine crossing this one boundary. And listen, every generation of human being that has followed after them has followed in their footsteps. And right here, in this very early moment at the beginning of the world, we find the trajectory for every human being. We find the why behind our problems. Here it is. We are our greatest problem. <laughs> now, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying anyone in this room me included, is worthless or a lost cause. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what the text is saying. But we have to understand, or we'll never understand the why behind our problems. We have to understand that we 
are our greatest problem. And I also understand that there are evils that are way bigger than us. There are systemic and structural evils and brokenness that are perpetuated after one key decision that carry on a life of their own. But the key turning point, where they all stem from, the root of all of that brokenness comes to the decision to turn our backs on God. Right here. We are our greatest problem. Not just him, not just her, not just them, not just those people, but us. And the result is that a whole bunch of stuff falls apart and breaks apart. And the fragmentation and the complexity and the all-encompassing nature of this broken world is detailed out throughout Genesis chapter 3, throughout the rest of the story. And we're going to touch more on that next week. But today, we're going to look at the biggie. When God says, don't eat of this one tree, he says, the result is you will surely die. And we do, don't we? No matter what consequence you face in your life, death always takes the cake. Death is our greatest consequence. It was true in the ancient garden, and it's true today. And there aren't enough vacation days there isn't enough money. There's not enough medication or distraction to keep us from it. And it's awkward and it's hard to talk about and nobody loves to dive into it, but the reality is that things get exhausted. They fall apart. They break apart. The second law of thermodynamics points us to the principle of entropy and nobody wants to talk about it and everybody wants to avoid it and nobody wants to bring it up. Gabe, why are you bringing it up on Easter? My family are here. But the reality is we can't avoid it forever. And some of us in here have lost family or friends this last year. How are you navigating that? And some of us have been to funerals where the, the best hope is that you get 80 or maybe 90 plus years. Or maybe if you get on the smucker's jar, congratulations, you know. You had a good run at life. And you find yourself asking, is that it? We think that maybe hosting a luncheon and telling a couple stories and saying they're not really gone, they're just now in here, which is what I've heard in almost every movie I've seen, is supposed to bring us comfort. I, I don't want to know they just are in here. I want to know they're out here. I want to know they're with me physically, not an idea of them, but them. And those of you who have lost ones you love know that to be true. You know that's not enough. You ache for it. There's something within you that knows there must be something beyond the grave. So what can we do? Today we gather on Easter. And what's so beautiful is that the story of Jesus' resurrection didn't just pop up out of nowhere in the first century as a surprise to the world. In one sense it was, but in another sense it's been baked in from the very beginning. And we see a hint of this in, this in God's beautiful promise that he gives in the midst of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 has so much brokenness describing how the world is broken, but in the midst of all of this grandiose brokenness, we find a promise from God to humankind. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says that there will be a son of a woman. And she will, and this, this son will do battle with the serpent, and the serpent will crush his heel, but he will crush 
its head. There will be a battle and it will come at great cost, but he will win over death. And now, with this beautiful promise anchored as now the trajectory of history at the dawn of time, we come and fast forward to 33 AD. You see, every story in this book is pointing right here. Every longing you have in your heart is pointing to this moment in history. Every promise we find in Scripture, every hope, every dream that's detailed out in the pages of the prophets points us to this moment. A moment where a son of a woman will come back pushing back the mistakes we have made throughout history. And by now, there's no doubt that you've probably heard of this story. That Jesus... The son of a woman is also son of God and he came into the world that he created and he died on a cross for the world that he created. And then he went even further into the world he created and was buried in a tomb for three days. And for those three days, it was the darkest of night. The world thought that God had lost and death had the final word. And then Sunday came and something happened. And now we finally come back to the passage that was read for us just moments ago in John chapter 20, where Mary's eyewitness testimony is handed over to John the apostle, and he passes it on for all those who are curious to know what truly happened of Jesus of Nazareth after he died on the cross. Where do we find Mary? We find her in a garden, coincidentally enough, again. Weeping as the first woman wept over the brokenness of the world, staring our greatest enemy in the face, a tomb. And it's empty. You know what's fascinating? Is that no matter your position, whether you're a skeptic, whether, you know, in history, an enemy, or a believer in the gospel and what God has done in Jesus, the facts remain the same. There is an empty tomb that everyone acknowledges and no one ever found the body. And so the position you find yourself is not whether there's an empty tomb or there was no body. If there was a body, they would have produced it and it would have ended this rumor and this legend long ago. But nobody found the body and able to produce it and everyone acknowledged the empty tomb. The question was, what do you make sense of these facts, and how do you make sense of these facts? And the move forward, no matter your position, is a position of faith based upon presuppositions and reality. And you know what's fascinating is when Mary comes to the tomb, what's her first assumption? Someone stole Jesus' body. That's her first assumption. Christians in the first century weren't insane, they weren't thoughtless, they weren't frivolous. They were human beings who thought that dead people stay dead. And her worst nightmare had come true that someone had stolen Jesus' body and who knows what they were doing to it. And so, turn with me if you haven't to John chapter 20 as we pick up this narrative where Mary, weeping at the empty tomb, comes across what she never anticipated. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, <laughs> she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And this next moment is absolutely astounding. In the midst of her distress, we see what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke creation into existence, spoke her name. And in that moment, in the midst of all the confusion and the doubt and the worries and the fear that had flooded her over the empty tomb, suddenly she knew his voice. And she knew that it was her Lord, her Savior, alive. I love the way that G.K. Chesterton, thoughtful journalist of the turn of the 20th century, writes, what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. It all fell apart in the garden, and it all begins to weave back together in a garden. And it's always darkest before the dawn, but the sun is rising. And in that moment, Mary realized who stood before her, and she fell, and she grabs a hold of his feet, his physical feet, not an idea of Jesus. She didn't sit back and recline and remember the teachings of Jesus and how good he was. She held on to who he is, alive, bodily, physical, holding on to him and the hopes of all the promises of creation coming alive, defeating death. She understood that we are our greatest problem and that death is the greatest consequence. And in that moment, she came to a realization that we too now can stand and hope that Easter is our only solution. We needed Jesus to be and do who he was and what he did. We needed him to be like us, but not merely like us, to be the God-man who created the world and came to deal with our cosmic sin. When we turned our backs on our cosmic creator, Jesus the God-man lived a perfect life, went to the cross, took our consequence, death, upon himself, paid our payment, and then rose again as an affirmation of who he was and a validation that our penalty has been paid. That death has no claim on those who are in Jesus anymore. And this resilient, unstoppable life begins to break in even now, helping us break apart those destructive cycles in the present and the eternal life that he promises us after death. So why are you here today? You're all dressed up in your Easter did, you know, your, your clothes looking good, right? Good looking bunch. Why are you here? Are you looking for more joy? Are you disappointed with the way things have been playing out in life? 
Are you angry with God? Do you, do you have questions for him as to why he allows certain things to happen in your life? Are you wrestling through depression? Is there guilt? Is there shame? What's going on? What brought you to this moment? And, and listen, I don't know what that is for you. I'm sure in this group it's diverse, very diverse as to why you're here today. But one thing I do know is why God showed up on Easter morning. Jesus physically rose again so that he could say to your problems, no matter how bad, no matter how far gone, no matter how shameful, they are put to rest in the resurrection of Jesus in the empty tomb. And he's calling you by name. Do you hear him? Do you feel him? He's calling you right now by name. And I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for years, but you need to hold on to him tightly again. Maybe you're here exploring Jesus afresh. He's ready and he's willing and he's calling your name. Why not hold on to his feet? Because what's the alternative but a garden of despair? It's either the garden of resurrection or the garden of despair. It is genuinely your choice. And it can be a choice you make this morning afresh. And I could go on and on and on about the beauties of the resurrection and how it's impacted me personally. But sometimes we need to hear from someone else. Sometimes we need to hear a story of how the gospel and this resurrection life really has broken in and brought transformation. And the people here in our very campus and so today, let's do exactly that. Let's watch. Before coming to Christ, I, I was absent uh, of, of an identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was. My life was lived with this hollow emptiness within my soul, within my heart. And I tried to fill that with gangs and, and sense of identity and family. And so uh, I had the Harley. I, I, I carried my, my pistol, my gun. Uh, I dealt in drugs and I did drugs. And uh, my life was spiraling out of control, out of control, out of control. I had destroyed my family. I had destroyed my friendships and every relationship that I had. Uh, I sought to hurt the people involved. God led me to a, a gondola uh, on Beaver Creek uh, Resort where I met a guy who I don't want to call a guy, I think he was an angel who came to me and preached the gospel message to me for the very first time in my whole life and I was 26 years old. And I wanted him to keep his mouth shut and, and, and leave me alone. But he kept yapping and yapping, yapping and then the words caught me and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jeff, the hope for your life. I didn't surrender my life right then and there. I didn't have a come to Jesus moment. I didn't have that Damascus Road experience, but I walked away from that day knowing that I wanted to go on a, on a search for it. I went on these other journeys and, and everything was meaningless. There was no hope in it. There was loss and rejection and pain until eventually I said, forget it all. I'm done. I was done with life. I was done with the misery that I left behind. I hurt a lot of people. I've got a lot of destruction in my, in my past, uh, uh, damaged uh, relationships and, and people that uh, our lives are forever changed because of my criminal activity. And I couldn't live with the pain of that, the hopelessness of it. There, there was no answer. There's no answer for 
redemption or restoration. There was nothing there. And I was hollow. I was hollow inside, and I couldn't live with the fact that I hurt people, and I hurt them really bad. And why I did it, there was no hope for me. And so I found my dad's gun key, and I unlocked it. I went and I loaded the gun up, and I plotted it out in my head, and I was standing there looking in a mirror. This is it. I don't have to live with it anymore. I don't have to go through it. I don't have to think about it every day of why I did what I did and who I did it to. I could just be done. So I had the gun propped up against the wall and I stared in that bathroom mirror when I heard these tiny little footsteps come through the house of my mom's house. And my mom had ran some daycare, so she, she had a lot of little kids that would run around. And I'm a big kid myself and I refuse to grow up. So the kids love me. Uh, and uh, she come running through that house and she stopped dead in her tracks and she hadn't seen me in a year. She was seven at the time and she had two front teeth missing. She looked right up at me and she looked me dead in the face and she said, Jeff, do you want to color? <laughs> and I said, absolutely, I want to color. That's when the Holy Spirit hit me. That's when my life changed. And that guy on a gondola who told me about that gospel message of hope and restoration and healing and redemption and forgiveness and all these words that I knew nothing about, suddenly they made sense in this act of this little seven-year-old girl who just wanted to be with me. And, and I knew that that's who the Savior was. He said, come to me, you who are weary and, and burdened, heavy laden, and, and I'm going to give you rest, Jeff, and I'm going to forgive you. This hope is for me, this hope of, of, of renewal, of restoration, of change, of, of uh, hope in a Savior. It's for me, and thank goodness, thank goodness. But it's also about us, and the hope that is for us is that I'm not alone in it. I have brothers and sisters, a family of believers, all striving for that same goal, all striving for that same hope. And then we, uh, as a people together, can be that hope for the world, because the church is the hope of the world. And Christ's community reminds me each and every day that I'm in it with a family. Easter is our only solution. A day when death met its match and Jesus silenced the power of the grave. And I don't know if death is pressing in on you and you're just tired of pressing back. Fall back at the feet of Jesus this morning, no matter where you are. And also lean into his body, the resurrection community, the church. You know what's so fascinating is that if you keep reading John 20, when Mary holds on to Jesus' feet, Jesus honors Mary, and he lifts her up, and he says, listen, there's going to be a moment where you can hold on to me, but right now, you need to go and tell it to the brothers, to the family of God. You need to go to the church. Resurrection life is never, ever, ever meant to be a solo expedition, but it's meant to be life lived together as we preach this good news to one another, and we spur one another on to live into this resurrection hope as the Spirit of God this resurrection spirit of God works in us and through us. 
And God has been doing this for over 2,000 years with his church, pressing her forward, moving her forward to fight against death as far as the curse is found, such that not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against her. And so wherever you are in your journey, fall at the feet of Jesus. But will you look up and also hold on to his church? Will you join us as we seek to seek out life and push back death wherever it's found together? And then maybe together we can with joy proclaim and live into that ancient creed that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this hope. Without the resurrection of Jesus, what would we have? Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes to the beauties of all that you have gone through to show us and communicate your love for us. May you open our eyes to our brokenness, the severity of sin and death, and the beauty of the gospel in Jesus' resurrection. May we lean harder into the life that you offer, power empowered by your spirit. And may we hold fast to one another, resiliently pressing against death together for one another, with one another, all because of you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. We pray in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen.